This is a message from our sponsor. I'd like to introduce you to Publica by IAS, the award-winning CTV ad server trusted by some of the biggest streaming services and smart TV manufacturers globally. Publica helps a growing number of leading AVOD and FAST services to power the programmatic ad break decisioning via products including a unified auction, server-side ad insertion, and a demand-agnostic ad server built from the ground up around streaming. Head to getpublica.com to find out how they help CTV publishers to grow their advertising revenues and provide streaming audiences with linear-like TV ad break experiences. All right, welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. Today we have an exciting show. We have Amy Williams, the CEO of Goodloop. Goodloop is a European ad tech company that was recently funded that focuses on making advertising good, good for the world, including carbon reduction. So we're going to talk about ESG, carbon reduction, and all the things as they relate to ad tech. And then we have a pretty full docket of news. There's been a lot of M&A news about companies going for sale, the latest on media math, because we always have to talk about media math. Um, and other pretty interesting subjects. And then after that, we have the latest episode of Justify Your Existence, where we talk to young startups about what they're doing with a pretty interesting company called Yobi that has a new take on third-party data. So please stay tuned for that. Okay, let's go into it. Amy Williams, CEO of Goodloop, thank you for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Eric, as always, thank you for being here. I should, I should not forget that. You're welcome, Ari. Hey, Amy. <laughs> so, Amy, last time you and I spoke was at the Possible Conference, where you were one of our people on the street. It was an awesome event. I really enjoyed it. Feels like a age ago now. Yeah, doesn't it? Um, it was. Uh, we were getting away from winter and happy to be in Miami, and now we're. That was actually still... my first ever time in Miami. It was. It was good fun, and I did that thing where you get like jets of water on your feet and like propel yourself into the air. Oh, which right. Was, like the most Miami thing I could have done. I always oh, see people do that, and they end up on their head in the water, like just, just a little bit of that. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty brave, guys. <laughs> so uh, this is this is my funny story about this. So I'm on a Slack group with a bunch of British ad tech people, uh, like Karen and people like that, and it's a really a lot of trash talk on that. And uh, they were asking me if it possible, and they said, "Did I see any, you know, UK people?" And I said, "Oh yeah, I ran into Amy. I never met her in person." Uh, and they're like, "Oh, Amy, she's great." And then I said, "Well, you know, just out of." Apropos of nothing, I said, you know, she's quite tall uh, because you were towering over me at the event. And uh, and um, their answer w was, well, that's because you're short. <laughs> said, well, OK, I'm not actually short. I'm 5'11". I'm perfectly normal height. And they said, you're not 5'11". And I said, yes, I am. Oh, and God. then they said, and then they said, oh, you know, we never thought of you as tall because you're so fat. <laughs> And so I got the I got just the piss taken out of me for no reason whatsoever um, as a result of our conversation. Good. Are you are you still on this Slack group? Or yes, I am. Don't invite me. That's a that's just every British conversation ever. If we're not being mean to you, we don't like you. I know, right? I'm the only American allowed in the Slack group. So, all right, let's. No one cares about the subject. Let's talk about the real stuff. So, what is Good Loop? What do you do? We make it easy and scalable for big brands to do good. Okay. Define doing good. Yeah, what is doing good? Isn't that subjective? Uh, well, there's a ton of stuff. I mean, as you mentioned in your intro, a big part of it is sustainability. You know, loads of big brands today are thinking about their footprint and all the things that come around that, right? There are 17 UN sustainability development goals. One of them is carbon emissions, but also 
water and plastics and and the oceans and all sorts of things and then of course the intersectionality between the climate crisis and so much of the of the inequality that we have in our society so a lot of brands we work with are really focusing on representation on championing underrepresented groups or minority groups celebrating diversity all sorts of stuff really but yeah helping them do it in sort of scalable ways that have very clear ROI because that's really my big theory of change is make it profitable make it easy and then big brands will give it a go right so are they doing this as a addition to their ad campaigns or is it a different budget for this good advertising or is it something else one way to think about it is like consider how boring soap is soap is the most boring thing ever you know i don't want to talk about soap at the pub but i probably would want to talk about the representation of women in the media the recent scandal of the of the spanish football coach kissing a player at the world cup you know uh the rights of women to wear hijabs, the the representation of armpit hair, right? Like whatever it is, there are interesting threads throughout society that talk about these issues above and beyond products. But by Dove tapping into those conversations and by talking about something that matters, self-esteem and body image and women's representation, they become the biggest soap brand in the world. So in answer to your question, no, it's an integral to every part of their marketing. It's how you build a brand today. Let's talk about your product a bit. This isn't really a product interview, but I want to understand how it works. So Dove comes to you, and uh, what do you do for them? Okay, well, we have three things. I'm going to mainly talk about the third. So quickly on the other two. Dove comes to us. We have a ton of ad formats that they can use to fund good causes. Um, We've raised almost $10 million for all sorts of charities around the world through these ad formats, like Don't skip to donate, swipe up to donate, listen to donate on Spotify, stuff like that. That's really been our bread and butter from the the day we started the business seven years ago. Then we have a suite of uh, different packages and curated inventory that help them find values-aligned journalism. So in that Dove example, you're finding women-owned publishers or content that champions and amplifies women's issues. And then the third layer is to kind of look deeper under the hood at the carbon footprint of the ads they're running. So a lovely example of this in action. We work with a uh, anonymous car brand. They wanted to understand that obviously a lot of the car brands are really focusing on, you know, electric vehicles and reducing their emissions as a business. So as part of those commitments, you know, they really wanted to understand the carbon footprint of their online advertising, which turns out is pretty huge. So we work with them to basically say, right, we can measure it. That's fine. That's relatively easy. And to be honest, should be commoditized and standardized by AdNet Zero and the other industry bodies like GARM. What we can do is help you reduce, help you understand, change behavior and learn. So we did a ton of stuff with them. We, they have a custom font file, for example, right? Most brands do. Custom font files are kind of, kind of important. But this particular anonymous car brand only has seven letters in its name. So why don't we just send those seven letters across the internet through every DSP and SSP and exchange rather than sending an entire font file? How can we vectorize images? How can we use lower resolution animation banks? Experimenting with things like WebP files, reducing the supply path, taking out really high emissions publishers. And through all of these different things, we reduce their carbon footprint by 41% without changing a single point on their performance. That's fascinating. Uh, so uh, what's a WebP file? Uh, you, you're talking about language here uh, with all these acronyms. 
It's a new Google format. For like compressed uh, images and video and stuff like that. That's very cool. So is that, it sounds like you're consulting with them more than offering a product in this case. Is there a line there between uh, helping them? So this was the learning, actually. In that example I talked through, that was a let's learn together, let's hold like each other's hands and kind of go through this as, as a very much as a consulting project. A really interesting learning from that was we talked to the media agency, we gave them this big recommendation of all these things they could change because creative is between 5 and 30% of the footprint of an ad, so it's important. So we send this big list to the creative agency and thought, great, that'll be easy. Three weeks later, with Hogarth, Ogilvy, Mindshare, like five different agencies on this bloody email chain, we still hadn't got the right file format. So the answer is, yes, it was a consultative at the beginning whilst we learned. And this is all brand new, right? This whole sector is brand new and learning a lot. And so it does take a little bit of experimentation. But now today, in answer to that three-week email chain, it's a drag and drop tool within our platform. So super easy to change your publisher list, maximize your, your efficiency on your creative with, with, you know, within 30 minutes. With regard to carbon, let's, let's like really talk about carbon for a bit. Uh, tell me how important it is um, that the buyers, the agencies and the marketers, how focused are they on carbon? How important it is? Well, 2023 is, is now confirmed to be the hottest year. In- <laughs> no, I believe in global warming. No, I meant how important is it to CMOs? <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe in it, Ari, but I do think it's important <laughs> say. Wrong, wrong podcast. <laughs> um, so, yes, it's important is the first thing. How important is it to brands? Well, I'll start with the businesses as a whole and then we'll think about CMO's role in that, right? Business as a whole, Unilever, committed to be net zero by 2039. Diageo, committed to be net zero by 2030. Amazon or Walmart, committed to be net zero by 2040. Apple yesterday announced their first ever carbon neutral product and have committed for all their products to be carbon neutral by 2030. Now, there's some nuance between net zero and carbon neutral and there's debate as to whether Apple have slightly cheated by using one, not the other. But these commitments are real. Across the world, 34% of all major organizations have a net zero commitment, which is growing year on year. It's growing really rapidly. I don't know if you saw just this week, California's lawmakers passed a bill to suggest that ESG will become mandatory disclosure in California. And in Europe, by 2024, by January of 2024, 55,000 organizations, the top companies in Europe, will have to publicly report their carbon emissions inventory. So does this matter to brands? Well, it certainly matters to their shareholders, right? $35 trillion of assets under ESG management, and even those funds that aren't ESG, it's now becoming part of an SEC filing. So it matters to shareholders, which means it matters to CEOs. We know it matters to consumers because consumers are voting with their wallets and buying more sustainably. Consumers also are experiencing this every day, right? I live in New York and I literally, there was a couple of days in past summer where the air was orange. Like there is no, oh, this is our next generation's problem. My air was orange. So consumers care, shareholders care. Now, CMOs, that's an interesting one. CMOs probably haven't been in these meetings in the past. Mainly, if you're Unilever and you're focusing on that 2039 goal, you're thinking about your plastic. You're thinking about your supply chain and your lorries and your factories. Sure, the CMOs definitely have been focusing on other things. But if you're Unilever 
and you look at your spend, you look at your cost, your P&L, one of your biggest expenses is your marketing. And so the CMO needs a seat at that table. I think we're very, very aware of the carbon impact of blockchain. It's one of the biggest parts of the debate around whether blockchain is good or bad. What we aren't aware of is the carbon impact of programmatic advertising. And so this is where there is a tipping point ahead of us. And CMOs who are leading into this and joining AdNet Zero and making those commitments within our industry, those are the ones that are going to have a seat at that table and going to be leading, you know, leading the conversation. Have you seen an uptick in RFPs that specifically ask for solutions around this stuff? A hundred percent. Not only that, I mean, I guess I'm a bit biased because they don't really RFP us if they don't want to do good. Yeah, I mean, so so yeah, so exactly, right? If, if, if you were a horizontal company, it'd be easy to look at percentages. I'm saying for, you know, like you're going to get RFP'd if somebody wants this in, in addition to maybe a couple of other companies. Like, so has the total number gone up year over year or particularly this year? And if so, like, is there an interesting trend or an, or an ask as part of this? One thing I'm definitely seeing is... Whereas before it was a point of differentiation, so key brands in a category would work with Goodloop because they wanted to really own this sort of sustainability space. Levi's, right? 90% less fresh water in their denim. Nature Valley, protect and preserve national parks. It was a differentiation point, a point of kind of premium USP. The change is now we're getting RFPs where the agency is saying sustainability commitments are written into our contract with our clients. And so we can't not do this. And it's not necessarily even about communicating explicit, proactive sustainability campaigns or brand purpose. It's the hygiene stuff. It's the how do we clean up our supply path? How do we understand the impact that our ads are having? How do we, you know, to take it out of our sector for a minute, like how do we use biodegradable inks? Like all of that stuff is starting to be embedded into the agency's deals with the brands. And it's a huge part of new business for agencies. Biodegradable inks, the new uh, business opportunity in ad tech. Guys, get into it. So you mentioned supply path optimization a couple of times. So one of the sort of cynical things I've heard is that uh, carbon neutrality or carbon reduction in ad tech is all about supply path optimization. It's just, you know, less hops, more direct deals. Um, less servers burning CPUs, trying to evaluate impressions. But you seem to be pitching that that's only one part of the puzzle. So maybe you can talk about that a bit. So as I mentioned, in our measurement, we find creative accounts for between 5 and 30%. It's a big range because obviously a display banner is different to a big high-resolution video. But um, you know that, that's a really important part of this. Then, of course, the supply path is key. Now, the thing that we... I think really need to go like a lot deeper on is is not only the supply path itself because that's really looking kind of horizontally through one served impression which is important and all those hops in the chain do need to be reduced but what about for every hop in the chain the trillions of calls that that DSP made to the SSP in order to win that bid so there's there's also like a vertical look at the efficiency and the win rates of the of the platforms and then on the publisher side Let's say a publisher has 20 SSPs. How many of them are in the header bidder? And do they need five? <laughs> and so there's, there's, there's sort of streamlining and optimization at every stage. And I think a really interesting question is how we attribute responsibility across the supply chain. Who is going to deal with which pieces of the puzzle? Because brands aren't going to pay for it all. 
but brands are going to drive this market forwards. And so that's, I think, where it gets really juicy. Yeah, there's never been any constraint for publishers for adding another another bidder onto their header. They could have 20 sources of demand, add a 21st, why not? Uh, but if someone was was measuring and telling the brands that that publisher was being irresponsible, there'd be a countervailing force against that effort. Yeah, and then I think another interesting dynamic, like if you think consider ad-blocked internet, right. it's about 25% less carbon intensive, which suggests that advertising is about 25% of the, of the internet. And so there's also a really interesting incentive with, you know, which aligns with things like the attention conversation. If you are a publisher that has eight ads above the fold and you're screaming at the consumer, and I mean, I, there's some sites I, like I'm honestly trying to find the article. Right, right. And, and so that's another really nice example of this like mutual benefit for the consumer, for the publisher and for the brand. I love that stat that advertising is 25% of the Internet. Presumably the, it's 50% pornography and the last 25% is news. Uh. <laughs> So the, just my round numbers. Um, what role does uh, carbon credits play here? Because that's another area that sounds great, but a lot of there's a lot of cynicism about. I think um, when I spoke to Brian O'Kelly from Scope 3, it was actually our first architecture interview we ever did, and it's still free on the site. You should check it out. Their approach, just to summarize at the time, maybe has changed, was we measure the amount of carbon a publisher emits, and then they have the option to buy carbon credits to neutralize that effort. That was kind of in a nutshell. So um, I don't, you don't have to speak about a competitor, but what, what do you think the role is of carbon credits in this? I think that carbon credits play a crucial role in the solution, but we need to tread really carefully and we need to be really honest about the limitations. So first thing to say is that there's different kinds of carbon credits. There are preventative measures, like if you take cook stoves and distribute them to people who are traditionally cooking on open fires, then you're preventing carbon from going up into the atmosphere because they're not going to be burning open fires anymore. This is a great form of carbon credit. Then there are um, sequestration types where they're basically investing in things that pull down carbon from the atmosphere. A good example here is tree planting. Tree planting is, is a great one where there's a lot of nuance because trees are lovely and brilliant and we need a lot of them, like all for it if you want to plant trees. The problem with trees is they do eventually burn down or die and then release all that carbon again. And they actually take quite a while to grow, right? Typically, a tree will take 50, 100 years, and we don't have 50 to 100 years. So this is where you know different kinds of credits are going to have different benefits. And it's definitely not appropriate to say, I threw some money at some cheap credits over there. I don't need to worry about it anymore. That's the equivalent of having 10 pints the night before, waking up in the morning and feeling awful, and then having a smoothie. Like, yes, you did a smoothie, that's great, but you still did damage. And so credits thing can really distract from a conversation around reduction. All right. That was uh, quite a metaphor there. Um, I'm reminded of the Chinese proverb about when to when to uh, plant a tree. The best time to plant a tree is, is uh, 20 years ago. The second yes, best time is today. So um, let's talk politics. Uh, so ESG in the U.S., not the most popular subject. We have we have people literally running for president against ESG, uh, which is crazy, but it's true. How do you think about that, or how do your customers think about that? Well, ESG is a very very shorthand term that's often used in the wrong way. So so ESG is quite simply it's risk management. It's a tool used by investors to look at the risks involved from 
bad governance or, or the population dying because the planet's on fire. Like those are risks that investors consider as part of ESG, environmental social governance. As I mentioned already, ESG funds account for about $35 trillion and ESG specific is about $3 trillion. So there's a lot of money floating around in ESG is the first thing to say. I really love, there's a, um, a quote from the head of corporate sustainability at BlackRock. I'm going to paraphrase, but he basically compares ESG to giving a cancer patient wheatgrass, which is great because it's like, wheatgrass won't kill the patient. So it's have not- Have you ever had wheatgrass? It might. I mean, it's disgusting. It's so disgusting. <laughs> I have actually a cousin in New Jersey who's like the wheatgrass king of, of Jersey. He made a fortune on wheatgrass. Well, you can tell him this story and maybe he'll use it as a PR campaign. But basically, it's like giving a cancer patient wheatgrass. It won't kill them, but the risk is it stops them seeking chemotherapy. And I love that that idea, right? It's like, it's innocuous, but also it might oversimplify and that oversimplification could be really dangerous. I'll finish with my, my more personal perspective, which is Goodloop is a B corporation, which is a ESG on steroids, right? If ESG is just like a few things you have to voluntarily tell your investors, B corporations are literally changing your legal articles association within the business to commit to prioritize your shareholders alongside your stakeholders. And that sounds sort of complex and, and a bit legal easy, but really it's very fundamental. Like I, as a founder and director of Goodloop, if we weren't a B Corp, I have one legal responsibility, make money for my shareholders. Because we are a B Corp, I have two legal responsibilities, make money for my shareholders and protect my stakeholders. And so what I would say is ESG is the tip of the iceberg. There are structures that are even more holistic, and I am really proud to be a part of that. That's great. Um, so one last thing before we take a break. I had read that you were 30 under 30. So you join Sam Bankman-Fried and Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, so do we have to watch out for you? Are you, are you headed to the, to the big house? Uh, Ari, you always need to keep an eye on me. <laughs> Let's take a break. We have a lot of news this week to talk about. We'll be back in one moment. This Architecture podcast is sponsored by Adelaide. Remember where's Waldo? He was 100% viewable, but still awfully hard to find. Your digital ads are like Waldo, viewable, but in a sea of distractions. You need to move beyond viewability. Adelaide helps brands like Mars, Audi, Colgate, and the NBA measure media quality and drive better performance by optimizing campaigns programmatically with attention data. Adelaide's metric, AU, is available at nearly every major DSP and SSP, making it easy to leverage attention metrics. Get a free Waldo was viewable t-shirt at adelaidemetrics.com slash Waldo. All right, where should we start? Um, Eric, you want to talk Critio first? Yeah, yeah. So um, before the recording, we were uh, debating on whether or not this was a new announcement because Critio has been sort of uh, super active in making announcements and rolling products out in the in the market. Um, and I do think this is new. Effectively, this is a you know, DSP for um, the retail media networks out there. So issue from a brand and agency perspective is because of the fast growth and the opportunity with retail media, um, there's been a boom in retail media networks. That's great because there's more opportunities. But if all these retail media networks are looking for you know some sort of like direct relationship or don't plug into DSPs, um, it makes it really, really hard. And it sort of reminds me of the, the, the ad network, the horizontal ad network uh, fragmentation of 2007 to 2008, where, you know, out of nowhere, there was like 200 and 300 and 400 ad networks, right? And you can only work with so many. 
So um, Critio, who's you know really trying to take the you know the leadership position in retail, um, you know did something about it and basically created a DSP for all of these disparate RMNs. According to what was written, um, there are 210 RMNs signed up, and their goal is to have 500 to 600 uh, in short order. So there are um, 500. There are 500 oh, retail. Oh, without now? a doubt, absolutely, uh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, so if you just think every retailer, like they're seeing what's going on with first Amazon, their Walmart, then Instacart, so on and so forth, um, they're all rushing into this game. So it's been a boon for you know, companies providing the tech. But then it's been like a real strain on marketers who are trying to have some sort of aggregation. So I think it's a great idea. Um, this may not be the idea, but it solves, I think, a real big pain point from a market perspective. Yeah, I, I have to agree. It's a, definitely an opportunity. I, I think it's going to live or die based on which RMNs they're really able to get on board because they have a big footprint on the sell side um, with sort of traditional retailers. Yeah. But a lot of the most interesting RMNs are people like Uber or Amazon and if they need access to that inventory. Next one, a lot of M&A news here. So let's talk about first Ground Truth. Uh, so Ground Truth, there's an article Business Insider that it, they hired Jeggy, which is a investment bank, to explore possible sales. Uh, they're a mobile location company um, that also owns Weatherbug because weather is inherently very local. So they bought Weatherbug so that they'd have more local data given that um, less and less is available from the apps. I think the story here is about um, the tarnish on the location business. Uh, that this is a scaled, probably profitable business. So it hasn't been disclosed. Uh, they raised $160 million over the years. But you get into location and you had all these really thorny privacy issues. And it's just a very dicey proposition to be in that business. Amy, uh, while you're talking about good things and ethics, do you have a point of view on uh, on this whole privacy thing? I'm not getting involved. You're not getting involved. Okay. All right. Let, let me let, let, let me add a, 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 a little bit here. So, um, yes, I, agreed, Ari. I think also a lot of these companies have, you know, try, have been trying to, you know, pivot away from location targeting to, you know, leveraging their capabilities in some way. So there's like intelligence, analytics, all of that stuff. Um, it's actually quite a crowded category. If you just think about all the companies that are still, you know, active in this space, you might not hear... Too much about them, but you've got not only Ground Truth, we've got Foursquare, Foursquare or whatever yeah. Foursquare is called today. You've got SafeGraph. You've got then I think a long tail of, of companies, um, you know, none of which have a real dominant market position. But to your point, like um, some of them have like healthy businesses. So I would expect further consolidation in this category because there's a lot of companies that there's, you know are doing a lot of this. Yeah, but there's been literally zero M and A in this business. So if yeah. you go back five six years ago, there were probably four or five decently venture-funded businesses doing this. They've consolidated, no exits. I think, you know, for- Maybe more M, maybe more M than A. Yeah. I think that could be the player. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, a lot of TV news. Um, so, uh, Eric, I think you just added this this morning. Video Amp raises $150 million Series G. That's a lot of kettlebells. Um, so, <laughs> for those who get that reference- uh, <laughs> Oh, I love when know, Ari loses, loses it over yeah, his own Ross, jokes. Ross is going to call me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so VideoAmp is um, is trying to become the new Nielsen. If you become the new Nielsen, you could justify a $150 million raise, right? Yeah, yeah, I think um, that's that. That's it. That's well said. You know, my sense is they're doing quite well. Um, the investor was Vista Credit Partners, 
which is part of Vista Equity. And Vista has done, frankly, quite well investing in ad tech over the course of the past five years or so. So, um, so this is uh, this is good. I think great for them. Yeah, I, I think that the the sort of Game of Thrones around TV measurement continues. There's not a clear answer, um, and I think that was also the case for what we've talked previously about the jick that's going on, or the gick, depending on how you like to say it. Um, and the answers are, we still are dependent on Nielsen. We would love if there was something else, but there isn't. So good luck to VideoAmp for trying to yeah. be that. And then on the subject of something else, right, you've got the other large player, iSpot. So they acquired a company called 605. Yep, it? 605. That's a, isn't that the area code in Boston or something? It's an area code joke somehow, reference. I, I think, think it's California. California. Or, anyway. Or Nashville. <laughs> well, you, we have to get our research assistance. Where's our location intelligence? <laughs> Uh, no, there's been so um, all of the TV oriented attribution companies have now been acquired. Um, so there's Data Plus Math, there, uh, which I guess Innovid bought, 605, and um, there's another one. So it's an interesting problem, which is how do you how do you use the limited signals from TV and CTV to do good attribution uh, for brands that may not have a retail presence and may have you know shopper data that uh, from offline stores and things like that. VideoAmp also does quite a bit of business in that area. I think they acquired someone too. Yeah. I think, oh, they, they acquired Elsie uh, yeah. last year, which is a, a planning uh, platform. Amy, do you get into TV with Goodloop at all? Or is it on the, on the roadmap? Is TV as bad as programmatic from an ESG perspective? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So TV, obviously TV screens use a lot of electricity and, and are relatively high emissions as a, as a device. But typically they have much more headcount per impression. So you're dividing the electricity by an average of, I think it's like 1.7 average people per view or something. Um, it depends on the network and there's a like- More an, efficient. Yeah, there's like an interesting extra piece of the of the methodology, which is like how many eyeballs, because it's not always two. So yeah, we, we, we're definitely working with some of the, the big connected TV players. We've got a lot of their data integrated into our platform. Is it as efficient if while you're watching TV, you're obsessively checking Twitter as well? I mean, it's crucial. We can't not. <laughs> and your kids are watching YouTube while watching TV at the same I, time. I like, think these are... is very good for the planet because no, one, no one's there anymore. So. <laughs> and, and since they switched to uh, black color, probably it's less, uh, less energy. Although I once read that black it takes up more energy on a screen than white does, which is kind of interesting, the tech detail. Picnic raised money. I have no idea who they are, um, but they're in the notes. So, Eric, why'd you put them in? You're an investor, right? Yeah. Yeah. Perium uh, was part of that round. Uh, first party capital, our friends uh, in the UK, you mentioned Karen earlier in the in the call, I think also an investor in, in Goodloop. Um, they led the round. And then uh, a couple of other interesting folks uh, participated. Um, uh, Bach did, as well as uh, the founder of uh, MIQ. Oh, wow. Well, who are yeah, they? G I should know who they are, but I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it's a it's a UK business, and you know, like the reason why I was excited about this one um, was so like if I were to start, you know, undertone again, yeah, like you know, I would do it, you know, sort of differently today, right? So start with user friendly formats, start with you know very unique inventory, have an eye towards some of the stuff that Amy was talking about in terms of you know like sustainability and and SPO, and uh, this company's doing it. Um, so it's like you know really interesting. You know, like unique formats, unique inventory, good publisher footprint. You know, focus on sustainability, and uh, you know they're they're looking to grow in the in the U.S. So I'll check them out. It's Picnic.io. 
All right. Hey, Amy, what's the fundraising environment like for companies that are, you know, UK centric? Are you based in the UK? You said you mentioned earlier you're in New York, but the company's based in the UK, right? Yeah. So Goodleaf is a is, is actually a Scottish business. We're, we're founded and headquartered in Edinburgh. And then I moved to London in January to kind of head up our US launch. And Matt, the founder of Picnic, is, is a friend of mine, actually, and, and moved to New York a similar time. So right. him and I have like shared war stories. And uh, yeah, cried into our beers a few times. So no, I'm really, really thrilled for Picnic. I think they're an incredible business. And yeah, fundraising is tough right now. I think it's really impressive he's got that round close because um, yeah, I'm seeing a lot of investors sort of inwardly focusing on their own portfolios, getting like a big switch to profitability. I noticed that that was a big strategy in the Picnic raise was sort of a switch to a kind of break-even model. And I think, you know, that's something I'm seeing a lot of investors talk about is like, how can we sort of batten up the hatches and then raise in the future from a position of strength. It's a much uh, more conservative approach. Absolutely. Everyone wants to see break even cash flow positive, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. just, you know, it's it's still unclear when the Series A and uh, later um, uh, market starts to get unfrozen, right? So you're just, you know, if you're investing and you're, you're making a lot of, you know, sort of seed and, and, and pre-seed investments, which we are, want to make sure that we're not assuming that there's a 12 or 18 month cash out date, which, you know, again, it's unclear 12 to 18 months is thing is going to unfreeze. I think it will, but you don't know. So uh, we can't go a week without talking about Media Math. Uh, so Media Math, Infilian News. Uh, so uh, Business Insider has the latest on the plans to turn around Media Math. Uh, before we start, I found out something new today. Um, so my friend Paul Connetton, who is a uh, former CMO of Beeswax and also investor um, in my businesses, he um, he mentioned that the Media Math logo with all those squares, those are IAB ad slots. Um, so the squares are meant to be ad slots. I did not know that. Maybe everyone else knew that, but gives us, I don't know if they're keeping the logo, but that, that's some background there. They own it. <laughs> they do own it. They can do what um, they want. So the article was a little short on uh, specifics. I think the newsworthy bit, which I think a lot of people kind of knew, is that Josie's involved. And so is probably Eric in some form, because the news said that Aperium, the firm, um, is giving strategic advice and that Joe's involved. Eric, care to no comments on that? Uh, yeah, no, we can we can talk a little bit of, uh, about it. But, um, you know, uh, don't want to speak for, for Joe or, or Rob, the, the CEO of Infilion, um, too much. Uh, yeah, Business Insider mentioned that there were uh, you know, folks in, from uh, Aperium as well as others you know, looking to uh, do what was called uh, Project Phoenix, which was you know, f- effectively participate in the, uh, in the auction. Turns out that there was a lot of interest in the assets um, such that you know, there were a couple of you know, bidders that came in with you know, sort of like really you know, high uh, o- opening prices. And uh, we ended up very quickly getting to know the Infilian team, understanding their vision, which was aligned with where we ideally would, would like to see the, the the asset regardless of who owned it. So we you know, ended up sort of you know getting to know them and working with them a little bit um, before the uh, the auction just to give them some advice. And you know we, we may or may not play a you know sort of advisory role in the in, in the future. Um, the the most important thing is you know MediaMath could have gone to a company that was you know looking to sort of build a walled garden and you know not use sure. the technology talent, you know, to, you know, sort of uh, power, you know, the, the sort of opportunity for um, everyone in, in, the, in the way that, you know, the, the business was before. Infilion has that vision. And um, I think they mentioned they've already, you know, hired a, a few old math leads back. So we were, you know, happy to see that end up in, uh, in, in hands with a shared vision. 
Right. Uh, the article makes a couple of interesting uh, points. The, they've hired a couple of old hands back. They're not clawing back any of the money that was paid out prior to the bankruptcy. It's not clear they'd be able to, but it's, it says that they're not going to do that. So that's presumably for the winners, the ones who got the checks and before the before the bank closed. They're also not on the hook for the unsecured debt in the bankruptcy, which is typical for bankruptcy proceedings. And last, and kind of most interesting, part of the is to offer what they called walled garden as a service. And I'm pretty familiar with that because that was definitely one of the beeswax strategies. And the idea here is that you have a bidder and you have some sort of supply integration, and then you let folks build a UI on top of that so that you know they can offer to their customers the ability to buy their media in a secure way. So sounds interesting. Good luck. I guess we'll have to wait and see on this. Yeah, yeah. For on the on the wall garden as a as a surface thing, you know, Joe Joe's just like full of one liners. It's 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 fun, you know, talking to them all day long. Um, <laughs> he he once said, and that's stuck. And he said this a while back. The right number of DSPs in the market is either three or a thousand. Yeah. Right. And then you know perhaps this portends that you know the the, the number ends up being being a thousand. Yeah, this is, is giving me PTSD. <laughs> Sounds like beeswax. I've been through this ringer before, but I'm retired now. I'm a podcaster. All right. <laughs> I think it's time to call this conversation. Um, please, everyone, stand by for the uh, Justify Your Existence with Yobi, super interesting company that probably most of you haven't heard about. Amy, thank you so much. This was a really interesting conversation. Thanks for having me. Eric, Thanks, always a pleasure. Likewise. Welcome to Marketectures Justify Your Existence, where we ask early-stage ad tech and martech startups to tell us why we should care about what they're building. Today, we have Max Snow from Yobi. Max, thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Ari. It's great to be here. So, Max, uh, you have sort of an interesting startup situation. So, what's the size of your company? What's the funding? Uh, you were sort of incubated by Bill Wise in some form. So, give us the basics. Yeah, so you'll be founded in 2019. I co-founded it with Bill Wise uh, from MediaOcean and then Tom Griffiths, uh, who's a machine learning professor from Princeton. Uh, we raised a family and friends uh, seed round of about $2 million back in 2019, 2020. Uh, we have some great folks like uh, Michael Donovan, Eric Franchi and Aperium, and some other uh, really great ad tech OGs who were a part of the round. We then uh, were heads down building the company for a couple of years. We then uh, did a strategic partnership with Microsoft back in 2022, which resulted in about a, a $12 million cash infusion. And uh, we're about 16 people today. So so the rule to be unjustify your existence is you have to be pre-A round. So that Microsoft uh, round was not really a round, right? So it's kind of a historic deal. At least that, that that's what I like to say. But we're one of the <laughs> first. <laughs> we're it happened last the... year, so I'm not sure it's historic yet. It's historic in nature in the sense that we're one of the the only companies they've done a deal with where we've gotten this $12 million cash infusion, but we got it for free. So they own no percentage of Yobi. Uh, they're not a board of director or they have no seat. But really, it's it's really an output, I would say, of Microsoft's larger conviction in, in the company. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's $12 million free cash. All right. We'll get to what they get out of that in a moment. Let's first hear what the product is. Um, so what is the product and why should we care? So Yobi say, uh, we're a privacy-preserving data company, and we're an AI business, where essentially what we focus on in the, the general thesis of the company is first-party data is not enough. After the GDPR and CCPA, most enterprises changed their data strategy. They stopped working with third-party data, and they doubled down on the first-party data they collect. 
The thing that gets us concerned or what keeps us up at night is, is that when we look to the future of AI and ML, the rule of the game is, is that these models are most successful when you feed it the most data. And the problem is there is no independent first-party data set that comes close to the scale, power, and, and let's say coverage uh, that an Amazon or Google collects. Right. You know, we love Netflix. We think it's one of the best data science teams and one of the best data science products uh, in the country. They certainly are the market leader in their space. But Netflix at scale, you know, it's just a fraction of the data that Amazon or Google collects. And so when we look at being able to best personalize or best predict future action, they're doing so with a fraction of the data Amazon and Google has. Okay, so I understand the problem, which is first-party data is better than third-party. We want AI. People don't have enough first-party data, uh, and you want to preserve privacy. I get it. This sounds great. What does your product do? So what we've done is we essentially rebuilt Amazon by exclusively partnering with dozens of first- and second-party companies like banks, retailers, websites, device manufacturers, and more to try and replicate that Amazon first-party data set. And what we've done is... In partnering with companies, scale wasn't our priority, permissioned consent was. And so we have a very unique definition of consent, which is we make all of our partners, not just rep and warrant consent, we make them prove it. So every identifier in our graph comes with a consent string and a timestamp that we validate. And if the timestamp and consent string isn't present, we simply just don't work with that data. Okay. So uh, I, uh, that's great. Okay. So we have a privacy protected first party data set. How do I use it? What, what is the product? I call you up and I say, I want to use your first party data. What do you, what happens? Yeah. So there's two products we sell. The first is data enrichment for machine learning teams who are looking to essentially introduce safe third party data into your first party data environment. We'll provide additional information about your customers in an obfuscated, anonymized capacity that'll fuel all of your machine learning and AI ambitions and increase the accuracy and predictive success of how you're modeling behavior. And then the second product is marketing optimization. So if you're looking to essentially uh, effectively acquire customers through programmatic media, we will do real-time optimizations. Think of us as like the bids for audience optimization, where we focus, we leverage our data as well as real-time impression and log files to identify consumers across the US with our graph who are most likely to engage with your ad. And we'll update those audiences through your seat in real time based on not just our third-party data set, but based on how the campaign is performing on a log level. So are you linking your data set to the customer's data set using an ID like an email or a hashed email? That's correct. Really, any identifier that the customer has, we can match to, whether that's an offline identifier or an online identifier. So let's talk about the data enrichment product. So let's say I, I am a medium-sized you know, e-commerce company. I think that would probably be your sweet spot. Um, and I'm, I want to give my data scientists just a lot more data about our customers. What's the mechanics look like? Do I upload a file to you with all the hashed emails and then I get back what? Yeah, so basically it works like any other enrichment process. So, you know, Yobi itself is working on enhancing our distribution partnerships with partnerships uh, participating in, let's say, the Databricks part of, uh, marketplace as well as the Snowflake data marketplace. But today, everything's done offline through or online through either an API transfer or a secure file transfer, whether that's through a cloud or an SFTP. You'll batch upload a list of identifiers securely. We'll then match in a secure environment to that list of identifiers. And where there's a match, Yobi returns back its privacy-safe behavioral data on that row level. 
is the data like human readable, like this person's a frequent traveler, this person has high income, or is it just like weights in an, in an ML model? So that that's kind of one of the unique value propositions of Yovi is we monetize our data in the form of what's called a vector embedding. So it's a mathematical representation of behavior. So you can't look at this and say the data originated from Kroger and this is your shopping data, but you can essentially glean 200 numbers that represent essentially what you're most likely to do next, but provide no level of interpretability. But when you join that to that first party data and you train a model off of it, the algorithm knows exactly what those numbers correspond to. Right. Data scientists love that shit. Give me numbers, not any semantic meaning, and let the model figure it out. So let's. I just want to close the interview by explaining now what did Microsoft get out of giving you all this money for nothing? So the biggest thing they got was was two things. They got a privacy-based solution to enabling their customers a one-stop shop solution to working with third-party data and doing so in a way that safely and responsibly enriches and drives machine learning performance and AI at a time where you know, Azure really cares about AI and our data unlocks AI innovation, primarily because we are the missing context that fuels AI performance. Right. So they're going to use it for as part of their cloud offering. Is that that's exactly online? right. Mm-hmm. Now, that's really exciting for a company your size to be able to, to score that sort of partnership. As I said, uh, we feel it's truly historic in nature. <laughs> Truly historic. Okay, Max, you've done a great job justifying your existence. Uh, one last thing: uh, who should call you? Like, what customer? Who listening to this should give you a call? CMOs, chief data officers, and we love heads of data scientists. You know, okay. anyone who loves data loves machine learning. We're we're happy to chat. And the company name again? It's Yobi. Yobi. All right. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for subscribing to Architecture. New interviews are added every week at Markitecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.